Every day of our lives is spent in the built environment. We live in homes and apartments, drive on roads, get gas from pipelines, go to work in buildings, make purchases in stores and restaurants. We rely on factories, plants, doctor's offices, and hospitals for our basic human needs. And while our world continues to shift and grow and change, the development and delivery of the built environment has fallen dramatically behind. Welcome to The Built Revolution. We're here to engage the leaders, visionaries, and innovators who are revolutionizing the built environment. This podcast is brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group. Hello, and welcome to the Built Revolution podcast brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group. Uh, My name is Clark Ellis. I'll be your host. Uh, I'm a principal with Continuum Advisory Group, and I've been consulting uh, in the construction industry since about 1998. Uh, I'm very excited to introduce this podcast and this series, uh, which we hope will continue to to build on the legacy that Continuum Advisory Group has uh, in driving revolutionary change in the construction industry and helps us fulfill that as as our mission. And our very first guest uh, really personifies that mission. Uh, We have Stephen Mulva, who's the director of the Construction Industry Institute uh, out of Austin, Texas. Uh, and he's here to talk a little bit about the Institute and about one of his critical uh, elements that he's working on right now and bringing people together in the industry to drive change. So, Stephen, welcome to the, uh, to the podcast. And I'd love for you to, to, to give us a little bit more background on yourself uh, and on CII and its role in the industry. Sure, Clark. Thanks. Uh, really glad to be here. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Um, CII, I, I feel like played a really great role in the industry for almost 35 years now. Um, Really started out of the 1970s hyperinflation and even given that backdrop, the costs of construction projects were far outpacing inflation and the business roundtable said we really have to do something with this. They commissioned a three-year study. Uh, One of the recommendations was to have a national institute to study and do research and development to improve capital projects. And CII was really the outgrowth of that. There was a professor at the University of Texas named Richard Tucker who took that upon himself. And with 29 companies, uh, they started CII in 1983. And I think we've really been uh, about improving the capital project ever since then, uh, starting in safety and productivity, moving into front-end planning. And so today, a lot of the best practices in the the industry that people who are in the industry know uh, they really got their formalization from CII. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, I've been at CII for 10 years now, and uh, the first eight I was one of the associate directors responsible for our benchmarking and metrics program, and the last two as the director of CII. And uh, I just I think there's not a better place for me. I'm so passionate about this industry, what it can accomplish for society, what it can accomplish for companies that are participating in. Uh, in it, and uh, I think we're we're about we've done a lot of great things, and we're about to do even more great things going forward. Fantastic, fantastic! I, I agree. It's it's a it's a group that I've known about for for quite a while, uh, and I'm very excited uh, to to get to have a better relationship with CII, and also uh, I'm really excited about the subject matter of today's podcast uh, because this is really what I think all of us in the industry that are trying to prove it, uh, as CII is, as Continuum Advisory Group and, and many others are, uh, has got to be excited about the idea of reinventing the business model uh, for the construction space, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that, that's really what you've articulated as the you know kind of moonshot uh, for CII under your leadership. 
Yeah, Clark, I think that's right. Um, when we started this, it, and I would say really over the last three decades, we've largely looked at the managerial and the technical aspects of project improvement. But um, this past summer, working alongside with, with uh, some of your colleagues at Continuum, uh, we ran three different workshops, uh, different parts of the country. And what we discovered was, you know, we were only really addressing part of the problem that, that as you suggested, we really need a different business model for our business of planning, engineering, design, constructing, operating uh, the modern assets or the modern facilities of the economy. And uh, that's what's got us so excited today about um, just exactly how we're going to go about doing that. Fantastic, fantastic, and, and I've been I've been watching. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to make it to the uh, to the national conference uh, in August, but uh, a number of my colleagues were, and I've watched a number of the presentations on on the CII website, and I've been really focused on your keynote uh, that you gave uh, at at the national conference in August down in Orlando, um, and how you you really laid out I think a compelling case that the industry itself uh, must change. Uh, you talked about the fact that we, we've been actually in a slightly negative productivity curve for the last, well, really the post-war era, um, while pretty much every other industry has you know, leaped ahead in you know, leaps and bounds in some cases in terms of productivity, our industry's lagged behind um, and, in fact, has, has had a slowly uh, disintegrating uh, you know, productivity curve. And you made, I thought, a compelling case that... Uh, if the industry doesn't figure out how to dramatically change that, uh, that we're at a point where, due to a lot of factors, uh, visibility, transparency, technology, you know, et cetera, uh, the industry's ripe for change to come from outside uh, that could have and will have significant impact on the industry. And I thought there were there were three main points to your, to your presentation that were pretty fascinating, uh, where you talked about the need to flatten the supply chain stretch each dollar and shrink for agility. Um, and I want to take each of those separately, but before we do that, um, what, would, what would you, what would your reaction be uh, to the idea that change has to happen and that we kind of have a, the, the industry is faced with a choice about whether it accepts it from, from the outside uh, from a disruptor or is able to disrupt and change from within? Sure. Uh, well, let me just start by saying I, I think that we're one of the last sectors of the modern economy to really move into uh, this century or really take a strong look at the, the business practices and the managerial practices that we've been using for really more than a century. Um, in fact, today, uh, the stock market on the Dow crested 23,000. And you look at the big gainers and the, and the ones that didn't gain, and, and largely it's the companies in the engineering and construction market that are still not benefiting. And that's unfortunate because, you know, we're really the builders of the economy. I mean, you can't have energy or health care or transportation or, or really anything without having a capital project first. And so mm -hmm. in some ways, our industry is the bottleneck. And what's happening is that um, – companies in other sectors of the economy are saying, you know, we can't move our businesses forward because we're stuck with a construction industry that um, can't run at the same pace. You know, you guys are walking and we're trying to run over here and it's just right. not compatible. And so I think we have to change and they're getting to a breaking point. They're getting to a frustration with us that 
um, they're going to strike out on their own, and some of them already have. So, you know, some of these uh, people like Elon Musk and Bill Gates and others are, are just saying, um, you know, we've got to come up with a different solution for our assets and our facilities and how we go about uh, planning them, building them, designing them, maintaining them, and uh, it's time to get on with that. And so your contention that, you know, it may happen from the outside, I, I agree with that entirely. Um, but I also think it's a call to action for those of us inside the industry that, mm-hmm. you know, hey, why don't we get on board with this and try to figure out a better way to go about it? Yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, um, yeah, I've, I've got my own thoughts, but but I'm curious, um, what do you see as some of the the reasons that the industry is in the situation that, that we're in, where we've, we've got this flat to deteriorating productivity curve. Uh, and to your point, I thought that's a great a great word. You said we're a bottleneck uh, to, uh, to the other elements of the economy. Um, you know, what are some of those factors that we've, that we've got to change uh, in order to, to reverse that? So on the flat productivity curve, um, the main thing I would say there is we're we're looking at productivity, but we're not questioning the the means and the methods. So um, mm. a good way to illustrate that is you know we're not questioning how to dig a ditch. We're coming at it with the same approach to production. Uh, and right. in this case, I'll just use an example of you know shovels and wheelbarrows. Well, we can dig a ditch with a hundred people with shovels and wheelbarrows. <laughs> the question we've been asking or saying in productivity is. You know, how do we get these people with their shovels to shovel faster and right. to move more dirt? Uh, and it's really kind of the wrong question. We have to question the methods of production. And if you look at any other sector of the economy, that's exactly what they do. I mean, you go all the way back to originally cars were handmade one at right. a time in a very cottage industry. Henry Ford comes along and he changes the methods of production, puts it on an assembly line. And, you know, manufacturing has just continued that to this day. In fact, they're at the point where they call it Industry 4.0, where the robots on the factory floor now talk to each other. Because, again, they're always questioning the methods of production. We've got to question not only time on tools and productivity, but we have to question, you know, how are we going about putting work in place and and, and doing those kinds of things? Yeah, I think that makes sense. And and, uh, in in many ways, we're we're not, um, we, we haven't even started. Uh, the process, in other words, <laughs> uh, we're, we're we're still working on the same the same process. We're just trying to to you know make that process a little bit more efficient. Uh, you know, two percent, three percent, you know, more efficient. We've got to uh, come at it from much much larger um, goals. Uh, I thought it was one of the, one of the interesting things is as you talked about uh, in your in your speech uh, on your 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 flattening the supply chain. Uh, I thought you had a really interesting analogy there, a really ex- interesting example uh, of how a very, a very large and famous company uh, was able to uh, deliver a new uh, product uh, in a totally different way, uh, and really by focusing on on flattening the supply chain. Is that something you could expand on? Sure. Uh, I mean, one of the problems we face in our in our business is that it's become increasingly fragmented and you hear that a lot but that's also because it's become incredibly specialized and so uh, if you go back you know 30 40 50 years ago you'd have a general contractor that would install an elevator Uh, well the elevators become extremely advanced and so the people who make elevators um, they have their own crews they do their own design you know and that's just we, we call that fragmentation but it's really specialization and so the the modern world is demanding that 
smarter elevators, smarter transportation systems, on and on. But what that causes us in a capital project to do is this proliferation of the number of companies that are involved. If we use our current business model and our approach to managing it, we're trying to herd lots of cats. Mm. And I always talk about, you know, if you have a $400 million project, there's 400 organizations all with, they're all contracted to each other in various forms and all different types of legal agreements. And, you know, it's kind of inefficient. It actually leads to just extremely high transactional costs. Um, what the modern economy does is it it flips that on its head. It thinks differently about the what those working relationships are like, what those legal relationships are like and the the manufacturer that you're talking about um is you know one of the the i think the example i used was um of boeing one of the largest commercial aircraft makers and defense contractors yeah they have the same situation you know the the aircraft that they're making has become you know every year becomes more and more technologically advanced highly sophisticated that requires them using even more and more specialist people and companies to uh, uh, design that, put it together, supply it. And so basically what they did is they they flipped the model on its head. You know, in the past they had been, you know, the owner was command and control, top down. You know, these are engineering standards. This is how we want you to interface with our Mm -hmm. company. Um, We're going to three bids and a buy. You're going to put, we're going to put out a solicitation. You're going to respond to it with a proposal. We're going to try to beat you down on cost, eventually issue you a purchase order. Again, takes tons of time, lots of transactional costs. Uh, Boeing flipped that on its head. They said, no, um, we're going to support everybody above us. We're going to let them do the design, so a lot of supplier-led design. We're going to pre-qualify our key suppliers. So they. this is basically building off the automotive framework of having you know, 50 Tier 1 suppliers in their case and you know, maybe a whole host of... 200 say tier two suppliers uh, and then we support them we work at the interfaces where they're having difficulties or um, experiencing some conflict we come in and we try to help the situation move it forward and, and do it quickly and that's led them to you know radical cycle time reduction on the order of you know 30 to 40 percent um, radical cost reduction on the order of uh, 40 to 50 percent uh, and it's just sort of embracing the fact that you have this specialization but just thinking about it in a different way it's not a huge shift and it's a shift we can make in capital projects but we just have to go ahead and make the shift uh, just like other industries have done yeah i think that i think you're right it makes sense and really almost since i started uh, consulting in the industry uh i've worked with you know specialty contractors large cms and gcs uh, EPC contractors, owners, architects and engineers. One of the interesting things that's become more and more prevalent across all the different types of construction uh, you know, that I've been involved with is all the specialists uh, continuing to say louder and louder, if you, and uh, in this case, you could be a GC, it could be another uh, specialty contractor that's, you know, where you've got a sub to a sub, or it could be the owner or, or the architect, if you would allow me to do my job and you know get out of my way, stop putting obstacles in the way, you know I could be more effective. Um, you know, and so to a large degree, I think a lot of a lot of the specialists and a lot of those those with uh, with unique capabilities and knowledge, uh, they're frankly are beyond any one person or one entity to really understand at that level. Uh, in other words, the GC can't understand all of those disciplines in enough detail 
to actually execute. Uh, nor can the architect understand as they're specifying every aspect of a building, understand each one of those aspects in the same way that a specialist in that particular area would. Uh, and so there, there's a, there is a, a huge appetite for uh, utilizing that expertise more efficiently, I guess, is, is one way to look at it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And uh, you, you definitely see the leading companies getting more into, they will call it value-added services, but mm-hmm. uh, like in heavy industrial construction, you know, uh, process controls, makers, yep. uh, made pro- valves and things, they're, they're getting into engineering because they're able to correctly design systems and with their products in mind um, and then working with you know, the eventual end users. And you're right. I mean, a lot of the generalist firms uh, don't see these conditions as frequently as the people who actually make the products. And that was, you know, at a basic level, that's my elevator example is, um, you know, people who make and design elevators, you know, let them design the installation into the building as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, It probably is going to end up being more straightforward and less problematic than than if you let the architect do it, who, you know, may or may not see that many installations of that particular, you know, type or variety all that often. Absolutely. No, that makes, that makes perfect sense. So, so in, in a way it, it's flattening the supply chain. Uh, it's also, you know, kind of turning it, turning it on its head um, in order, in order to flatten it. So you're getting uh, the power to make the decisions uh, in the right places. Um, is that, is that a fair statement? Right. Well, so one of the, issues with the command and control from the top down is you basically engineer into multiple layers and I, mm-hmm. I just call it a pyramid scheme because you have the owner at the yeah. top and you have layer upon layer in most projects you're looking at about a 10 to 8 to 12 layers um, again all contracts in between them it takes time and cost uh, the modern economy is about a single thin layer and you just let whoever's out there come and apply their their knowledge their skills their products, services onto that thin layer and for whatever's needed. And that way you basically match the need with the people who can supply the capability. Um, if you do it at that level, you don't you, you basically cut through all these layers of um, reporting and cost and, uh, and and you basically get rid of all the transactional costs. And that's that's the easiest way to flatten the supply chain is put them all on a transactional platform. Now, in Boeing's case, they used a system called Exostar, uh, and mm-hmm. it was designed for aerospace and defense, but really it's been broadened past that. It's been used in other types of industries. But um, that's essentially one type of an operating system where you have all these different specialist firms able to collaborate and work on something and and technology is there for us in capital projects today i mean we have many examples of lots of firms collaborating to build a uh, or design a, a bim model a 3d cad representation or the actual digital twin of what you're building mm-hmm. so we're at a point where the technology is there but now our business model is lagging behind we just got to bring those two kind of more into sync yeah, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, let, let's let's shift gears and and talk about the second element or the second um, key uh, platform uh, that that you you um, enunciated at at the conference, which is stretching each dollar. And I think this one is really unique because it's it's very easy to read that or hear that and just sort of let it slide right by because uh, we we're, we're always trying to stretch the dollar. We're always trying to do things more efficiently, um, but. 
when I listened to your presentation, uh, I thought it was really, really interesting uh, the way that you explained what you meant by that in the examples that you gave there as well. So maybe if you could expand a little bit more, because to me, stretch, stretch the dollar, is, it's, it's a little too easy to sound like motherhood and apple pie and for people to kind of dismiss it. But you, you, you meant something very specific. Sure. Um, you know, local governments will talk about not, you know, this is one of the reasons they don't like online commerce is that the dollars leave their community. You know, they're trying to stretch each dollar by reusing them locally. So they, you know, they prefer you to mm. go to a local store, buy something. So they accumulate that sales tax that goes into the pockets of the owners who pay the people who work in the store. I mean, you get the idea. If you just send your money out of, out of state or out of country, you know, it's gone. It doesn't necessarily benefit the local community. Yeah. Um, essentially, that's what we're doing in our industry. You know, we, we send the money away and we don't really reuse it. We're not continually stretching the dollar. There, and that manifests itself in at least three or four different ways. Um, I think one of the first is pretty, pretty easy to understand. And it's, I would just say we're living off the borrowing side of the dollar. Uh, you think about construction, we put construction work and material in place, and then we go bill for it. And then 30 or 60 days later, somebody sends us a check. Well, <laughs> that means that you're constantly, you know, most contractors have to go get a line of credit. Um, they're, their cash flow gets a little wonky. You know, they find themselves in some thin periods. Uh, it causes them to increase their transaction costs. You know, versus say, you know, a hedge fund with a ton of investment behind it, um, they don't need to go get a line of credit. They're already managing a ton of capital and assets, and uh, they could go ahead and 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 do that more efficiently. Um, Second thing is we've got this distinction between CapEx and OpEx, which I think is really destructive. Um, a lot of owner companies, traditional owner companies, you know, they, they see the world in these two buckets. And so the objective is to, you know, minimize both CapEx and minimize OpEx. But um, really, you want to minimize the total life cycle cost. Um, mm -hmm. And so how do you do that? Well, I think one way to stretch a dollar here is just don't use as many dollars because you don't actually have to have that that large of a capital outlay. Um, you can there's some new and even old uh, financial vehicles we can bring to bear on this. Um, if you just think about leasing, for example, uh, you could actually lease pretty much all the equipment in a facility. Uh, and I think about a manufacturing facility or a refinery or something like that. Um, but the suppliers, the people who make all that equipment. Uh, they'd be happy to lease it. Uh, in fact, that would actually help them stretch their dollars because it would even out their cash flow. Mm -hmm. um, I'm continually worried about engineering and construction firms that you know, feel like they've got to go sell lots of projects, even if they're not projects they necessarily want, just to justify their backlog, um, mainly because their, own, the, the, their money-making opportunity is a one-time event. You know, it's that, it's that 18 months of construction where they're actually putting work in place and billing for it and then it basically goes to zero. Uh, what you'd rather see, you know, from a cash flow perspective or if I took engineering economics and the cash flow diagram, you mm -hmm. probably remember that. Yep. Um, you, you know, you'd like to stretch that out over 20 or 30 years and um, at, when you get to that point, it's just an operating expense. You know, there's not that one-time CapEx event on the front end. I think that would enable us to do a lot more projects. And in fact, that's really the ultimate goal here is if we can do these things like stretch the dollars and flatten the supply chain and be more agile, 
you know, we can build a lot more facilities. Um, that means added opportunities for profitability for everybody who's in engineering and construction. It means uh, enhanced shareholder returns for owners and and enhanced benefits for, say, the general public when it's a public-type use facility like a hospital or a school or a road. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, you, you, you talked about something there and, and came back to it, the, the separation inside of the, the client organization, essentially, the, the owner of CapEx and OpEx, and the idea that in, in, in isolation, we're going to minimize each or we're going to optimize each. And the reality is that's, that's a flawed way of thinking of it because there's interaction between those two uh, buckets. Um, the decisions that you make in CapEx are going to have a huge effect on your OpEx uh, on down the road, vice, even, even vice versa to some degree um, in terms of uh, you know, how, how you operate the facility. Um, so h- how, how do you get owners to, to, to get it and to think differently and not, not to not only separate the budgets, but in, in a lot of cases you, you have completely separate groups that, that don't even really talk to each other. <laughs> very much sure you know running those those two different functions yeah it's it's a tough challenge i mean a lot of these companies uh through mergers and acquisitions have gotten even bigger and of course that makes the challenge of them talking uh, more and more difficult i think the the fastest way that owners can do this is um really i don't want to say put pressure on their capital projects folks but um Try to get them to think about how can they be a profit center for the for the corporation. Because right now, most of them view themselves as a as a cost center. And uh, we did a study that concluded in 2016, again with uh, your colleagues at, at Continuum, mm-hmm. uh, where we looked at exactly that dichotomy. Right, you had the strategic business units that um, were unhappy with the, the capital facilities group, and uh, you know project people and the business people they're sometimes they're like well in water they don't speak the same language um, you know how do we get them to speak the language of business uh, but basically what we found is you know they just the capital facilities folks largely thought themselves um, you know we're order takers mm-hmm. we wait for the phone to ring it tells to go build something somewhere we go do that we're um, we're mature we've been down that road before and uh, we do it in the tried and true fashion because you know we're we're all about being as predictable as we can and trying to minimize risk, but they're not being efficient. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what the corporation needs to look for or the public agency is efficiency. And that gets us back to, you know, be efficient with capital, but be efficient with the operations. If you start thinking of yourself as more of a value center, um, and I think the example I used at, at our annual conference was was Walmart. You know, mm-hmm. they used to just take orders on where to build stores, and uh, there was a point in time where they were building 450 stores across North America. They actually transitioned themselves. Uh, you know, it started with sustainability, but they actually learned that they could use the building to actually generate some some profit itself. And so you. Uh, most Walmarts that you go in today, they during the daytime, they have no artificial lighting. Well, that's to conserve operating expense. Um, some of them have wind or solar. Uh, some of them generate more power than they consume. And at that point, you know, the building, the asset is actually uh, a net positive. You're not counting on income just from what you're selling out of the store. You're counting on the facility itself to generate some income. Mm-hmm. Um I don't think they've taken the full step to really, you know, lease out their entire facility, but uh, you definitely see some corporations that are going to a more of a developer model. Um, I know the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs for a lot of their clinics, uh, they now look to developers and they sign a 20-year lease 
to to have this clinic space um, just because it it evens out their cash flow um, and they are able to take a stronger look at that balance between um, what does it actually take to run the facility uh, and then what do we want in the facility itself uh, the more that we can do that um, I think the better off we're going to be yeah, and also it also I think uh, underlines your, your point about specialization earlier um, you know why, why should the VA for example be in the business of being really good at real estate management and facilities management uh, they, they need to be really good at serving uh, the veterans in, uh, in medical facilities and other facilities and, and services they offer. So you know, by, by moving to that model, they're able to focus on their core uh, reason for being in existence. Uh, like there, there's, a, there's a lesson there for a lot of different organizations, uh, public, private as well. Sure. Yeah, I, I think there's that always that question of core competency. And of course, that really came to the forefront in the 90s mm-hmm. you know there are companies all over the place that ask that question when i look at the capital facilities part for owners you know the owner really does three things you know they they come up with an idea mm-hmm. um, and a lot, a lot of times it comes out of a business unit or um, product line or something like that uh, you know hey look we've looked at the marketplace there's a need for something we could offer it's an idea the second thing is capital uh, and you know where are we going to get the money to do this and a lot of times that's from retained earnings or they have a bond issuance or they go get some debt from, you know, an investment bank. And then the third one is uh, operations um, responsible for operating. Well, I think in the modern world, uh, the traditional owner doesn't have to do all those, all three of those things. And I, I think if you go forward five or 10 years, my prediction is that the capital, uh, the majority of the capital, maybe two thirds or more will come not from a traditional owner. It'll come from developers or private equity or um, mm-hmm. investors of some type that will put money behind an idea which could come from pretty much anywhere else. We don't have to look to the Fortune 500 blue chips for all the ideas. You know, the ideas can be sourced, you know, essentially from anywhere or just kind of a grassroots effort. And then operations, again, that can be split off. Uh, CII has a lot of great members that, that are in uh, permanent you know, in-plant maintenance kinds of roles, permanent presence, um, and, you know, they're working on behalf of the owner. And the owners are doing that because they, they find that it's more efficient and they get the specialization that they need without taking on, you know, a staff of 30. Um, so I think all of those roles are going to get questioned um, as we go forward. It's really going to be up to the organizations to determine, you know, what are what is their core competency, and in the facility space, you know, what parts of that do we want to take on? Um, can we be a profit center in some of it? And then what parts of it do we want to leave to the experts? Thank you for coming to hear episode one of the Built Revolution podcast. Please come back next time as we finish our discussion with Stephen Mulva, director of the Construction Industry Institute. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Built Revolution pod brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group and the Construction Industry Institute. Continue the conversation on Twitter at Built Revolution Pod or email us at hello at builtrevolutionpod.com. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals being interviewed, and they do not necessarily reflect the views of the sponsoring organizations.